Second Kings chapter 20 this morning. Second Kings chapter 20. What if you knew that 2015 would be your very last year on earth? What if you knew? Would it make a difference? The fact is God may call some of us home in 2015. What if you knew that this was the year God was going to call you home? Would that make a difference? Jesus may very well come back in 2015. I was hoping and praying he'd come back in 2014. I'm still disappointed, a little bit angry over that. But we're still praying that he'll come back in 2015, and he very well might. Now is your salvation nearer than when you first believed. Every single year that comes along is closer than it was before. What if Jesus comes back in 2015? And what if you knew it? You absolutely knew that this was the year he was coming back. Would it make a difference? Would your priorities be any different? Would your activities be any different? Your concerns, your prayers, would you pray differently? Would you spend your money differently if you knew this would be the last year? Would you organize your remaining minutes differently based on the fact that you knew? Would your conversation with friends and family be different if you knew this would be the very last year? And as I think about that, I think about it, it is a personal question. It's something we all ought to be asking ourselves personally, but I think as a church, too, we ought to consider that as a church. What if we knew? Would it make a difference to us as a church, our plans as a church, our goals for that last year? Would our programs change, our emphases? Would how we use God's money to reach our world change if we knew this was the very last year? In just a few minutes, we're going to have our annual business meeting, and we're going to talk about, you know, the, the finances and the goals and the plans and some of the things that took place last year and some of the things that we're thinking about for the new year. I wonder if we knew that this was the last year, would it make a difference in what we do and how we live and how we think and how we speak and how we, all of our aspirations. What, what, what if you knew? You know, back when I was in high school, I remember reading about biorhythms. Anybody know what biorhythms are? I think Paul knows what biorhythms are. Let me read you a little lovely definition from Wikipedia about biorhythms. It says, according to the theory of biorhythms, a person's life is influenced by rhythmic biological cycles that affect his or her ability in various domains, such as mental, physical, and emotional activity. These cycles begin at birth and oscillate in a steady sine wave fashion throughout life. And by modeling them mathematically, it is suggested that a person's level of ability in each of these domains can be predicted from day to day. You got that? Is that clear as mud? So there are three supposed cycles that we go through that have a biological rhythm to them that we can chart out as a sine wave. You know what a sine wave is. It goes like that. We have a physical biorhythm. And I'm not, I'm not promoting this, by the way. I'm just simply telling you the theory. Uh, there's a physical biorhythm that repeats every 23 days. It starts at birth, and it takes 23 days to go through that sine wave, and then it repeats again. You have an uh, intellectual, no, I think emotional is next. You have a, an emotional uh, biorhythm, which repeats every 28 days, and you have an intellectual biorhythm, which repeats every 33 days. So here's what the theory says. The theory says that on that day, when, when that cycle is at a peak, well, that's a good day for you. If physically you're at, your biorhythm is up, that's the day to run your marathon. If your biorhythm is down, that's the day to stay in bed. It's not a good day. 
if the, if your uh, intellectual biorhythm is up on one particular day, that's the day to take your ACT or, or, or some big test or do some big intellectually stimulating thing. When it's down, you'd best keep your mouth shut because it's not a good day. And as I recall the theory properly, uh, if I recall it properly, um, when two of those lines would cross, that's a really bad day. That's, that's just a, that's a extremely nasty thing. And then when all three of them cross at the center line, well, you're dead. That's the end of the story. I mean, that only happens at birth and it happens at death. Now, I don't know if I remember this thing correctly, but that's the way I remember it. And I remember when I first heard that, I thought, wait a minute now. I'm just a teenager. You know, we teenagers aren't all that smart, right? I, I'm just a teenager. But that can't possibly be because simple math would tell me that every single person on earth would die at the exact same time, the exact same age. As a matter of fact, if you do the math, it's 58.2 years old. I'm getting pretty close. My biorhythms are just about ready to cross. So I don't think I agree much with the theory of biorhythms because if we knew, if it was true, then we would all know the exact day of our death, 58.2 years after the day of our birth. But what if we did? What if it was true? What if we really did know that this was the last year? Would it make a difference? Well, interestingly, there are some people in the Bible who knew exactly or very, very close to when they were going to meet meet their last day. And let's see if we can learn something from them. Because I think there's some interesting thoughts that we can maybe help us as we go into the new year. The first one that comes to my mind is Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah? Hezekiah was one of the kings of Judah. He was a good king, one of the best kings that Judah ever saw. As a matter of fact, Second Chronicles 29 and verse 2 says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Also says that thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered. As a matter of fact, it's said of Hezekiah in, uh, where's this one? This one is in Second Kings chapter 18. It says that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So here's this king, this great king, this godly king, this person that the writer of Chronicles or, or King said uh, was, was uh, unlike any others. There's none as righteous as Hezekiah. His reign is described in three different places in our Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 18, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and Isaiah chapter 36. We know when he started to reign, and we know how long he reigned, and we know when he died. In 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 1, we read, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. So we can do the math, can't we? He was 25 years old when he started to reign. He reigned for 29 years. We know, if we read a little further, get to the end of the story, the thing that ended his reign was his death. So he was 25 years when he started, plus 29 years, he lived to be 54 years old. It's pretty simple math. We know exactly when he started and when he ended. He was a great man. He was a great king. He was godly and good in nearly every way. Hezekiah was a man to be emulated. And God blessed him in unbelievable ways. One time he prayed for deliverance from uh, the, the uh, Assyrian army of Sennacherib. And God answered his prayer in a miraculous way by overnight, with just a stroke, 
killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in their sleep. All in answer to Hezekiah's prayer. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead and all in response to the prayer of this man. So he was a good guy. To get some uh, idea of the size of the answer to that prayer, the horseshoe, as far as I know, the Ohio State Stadium, has a seating capacity of about 104,000. Again, according to Wikipedia, which is always such a reliable source, according to Wikipedia, the greatest attendance they've ever had in that stadium was 108,610 screaming OSU fans during the Michigan game last year. If you get a picture of that mob in your head, and then basically double it, you get some idea of the size and the magnitude of God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. 185,000 soldiers dead in their sleep. So he was quite a guy. And I can't wait to get to heaven someday and meet Hezekiah. He's, he's one of those guys that's on my short list of heroes to look up. But for our purposes this morning, there's a very important story that took place in Hezekiah's life that I want us to see. And, and I think you'll see when we read it that Hezekiah knew exactly, maybe to the minute, when he was going to die. Let's start reading in Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20, and let's just read the first 11 verses. Second Kings chapter 20, verse number 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees, or go backward ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, let the shadow go backward ten degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So do you understand the story? Ahaz has been told here that he would die. He prayed and asked God to reverse that decision. And God answered his prayer by promising him an additional 15 years. And he gave him a miraculous sign to assure him of the truth of that. I always find it amusing that Hezekiah thought it would be an easy thing to turn the sundial forward ten degrees. In other words, let's speed the sun up. We'll just make the earth spin a little bit faster. It'll go forward. He thought that would be easy. I don't know how he thought that would be easy. But the miracle was even more miraculous when you think about the fact that it went backwards. Time reversed by however much 15 degrees on the sundial would be. So Hezekiah recovered, and Hezekiah lived 15 more years. So if our math is correct, this event must have taken place when he was 39, right? Because he died when he was 54. And the last 15 years would have been this miraculous time that God had told him he would live. So he knew. 
He knew exactly when he was going to die. Did it make a difference? Well, we know a few key truths about the last years of Hezekiah's life. We know that he went on living. We know that he went on reigning. We know that he kept on accomplishing. He continued to be, for the most part, a righteous man. Many of his accomplishments took place in those 15 years. If you go to Israel today, there is a a thing called Hezekiah's Tunnel, that if you're an extremely brave person and don't mind wandering through waist-high water and pitch black for, you know, like several hundred yards underground, you can go through that Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is still there today, something that he, uh, great uh, uh, architectural marvel that he built. It seems that that was in those last 15 years. So good things took place. But it also seems, and I don't want to be too dogmatic about it, but it also seems that Hezekiah became self-centered the older he grew during this 15-year period of time. Let's read a little bit further and see if you see that. Verse 12. At that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth? At least in my days. Now, I have got to believe that if we could get Hezekiah to stand here today, that he would not be real happy that he said that. That that would not be one of those sentences that he would look back on with pride. Because there's really nothing, no way to put a good face on what he said right there. That's one of the most selfish statements you will find anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't matter that all of my children are going to be carried away captive. It doesn't matter that my kingdom is going to be destroyed. All that matters is that during my days, there is peace and safety, that I am... Okay, somewhere this godly man had allowed into his heart a selfish lack of concern for the welfare of those who would follow. And I suppose nowhere is it seen more clearly in the life of his son Manasseh, his son who was born to him during that 15-year period of time. We read in the last part of the chapter, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 21, Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And it doesn't take a math genius to figure out that he was born during that miracle time. He was born during that 15-year period of time. And how did this Manasseh turn out that God had given him this child in those miraculous years? Well, we won't read it, but if you keep reading in chapter 21, you'll find out that he turned out poorly. He was as evil as Hezekiah was good. And all the superlatives that were heaped upon Hezekiah as far as his righteousness was concerned were heaped upon Manasseh as far as his evil and wickedness were concerned. So Hezekiah knew. He knew exactly, perhaps to the minute, uh, when he was going to die, when his last day was going to be. And in full possession of that knowledge, he seems to have become self-centered and turned inward and be concerned mostly for himself. 
His attention focused on him, his life, even to the exclusion of the child God gave him during those years. And I imagine some are sitting here today and you're probably saying, yeah, Pastor, you're just being way too hard on Hezekiah. The Bible really doesn't go that far. And that may be true. I I don't want to be too hard on him because the Bible says he's such a righteous guy. It, It may well be that he did not set out to accomplish that. It may well be that he did not actively try to turn his back on Manasseh and actively try to become self-centered. You know, contrary to what modern ideas might convey, children are not always the result of their parents. They don't always turn out bad because of their parents. Sometimes they turn out that way because of their own foolish choices, made in spite of the prayers and tears of godly parents. So maybe that was Manasseh. I don't know. But I think at the very least we can say he didn't seem to make good use of the time that remained. I think at the very least we could say he at least frittered it away. If he did not throw it away with both hands, he at least frittered it away. He had 15 years. He knew. And my guess is that he did the latter. He frittered it away. So let's learn from Hezekiah. If 2015 were to be our last year, if we were to know that, would we spend it on selfish pursuits? Would we be more concerned that there's peace and safety in our time than those who would follow us? Even if it meant those that we love? Would we pour ourselves into our loved ones knowing we had but a short time to win them to Christ? Or would we abandon them and say, you know what, as long as it's okay with me, we'll let them worry about themselves. Let's learn from Hezekiah. Well, there's another guy. Let's talk about another one. Let's talk about Peter. Peter's another one on my short list. I can't wait to get to heaven and meet Peter. Do you have a short list? When you get to heaven, have you thought through who you want to go and see? Have you, have you got it all figured out? I'm sure it's going to start with Jesus, don't you think? He spent about a million years with Jesus. And in my particular case, my short list now goes right immediately to Beth. After that, I have, it, I have every intention of going from the throne room straight to her mansion, which I'm sure is a huge one, and uh, say hello. But there's some others who are on my short list, and uh, Peter would be one of them. So many others I want to talk to. You know, Peter was a great guy. But in some ways, Peter was a wild man. Peter was one of those guys who would open his mouth wide and insert his foot deep. And I have been known to do a little of that myself. I see a little of myself in Peter. So I want to meet him. Peter was an impetuous guy. He would jump in with both feet when he would have been so far better off to have stopped and thought about things for a few minutes. And unfortunately, I've seen a little of that in myself as well. So I want to meet Peter. But one of the things Peter is most famous for is his denial. You remember the story of, the, of how Peter denied the Lord. Jesus had been arrested. He was on trial. He was about to be crucified. Peter was watching from a little distance away. And some little girl said to him, aren't you one of his followers? And he said, no, I don't know him. And he did that three times. You can read about that story. We won't spend a lot of time on that this morning. You can read about it on your own. But uh, certainly the part I want us to think about this morning is the end of the story. Or as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, because after Peter had denied Christ, Jesus met him on the seashore, cooked breakfast for him, talked to him a little bit about his denial, restored him to service. And then Jesus said this to him. He said in John chapter 21, and verse 18, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish this, he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Peter didn't know the exact time of his death like Hezekiah did. But Jesus' words there gave him a pretty good set of parameters. Uh, he, he, he could at least narrow it down pretty close. He knew pretty much how long he was going to live and when his, 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 the day was that he was going to die. And so the question is, did it make a difference? 
Did it make a difference? Did Peter's knowledge of the time that remained, did it influence his thought? Did it influence his behavior? Did it influence how he, how he prayed? Well, Peter said it did. He even talked about this. In Second Peter chapter 1, he said, uh, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So he knows. He knows he's running out of time. He knows he's in the last little bit of his life. And what does he say he's determined to do as a result? He said, I'm determined to tell you. I'm determined to tell you again. Remind you over and over and over again. And he said, I'm determined even to leave reminders so that after I am long gone, you'll still be being told, even though I'm not here to do the telling. He said, I'll tell, I'll retell, and I'll leave it behind so that others can continue to tell. What if you knew this year was the last? There are people in your life who are lost. There are people in my life who are lost. Would you like Peter be concerned enough with the shortness of time that you would sit them down and tell them? And would you be like Peter and be dissatisfied with them saying no one time? And would you sit them down and retell them? And would you be concerned enough that you'd even leave something behind? So that if you were gone, the message is still there and they're still being told. You know, in the Left Behind series, in the Left Behind series, which I, I talked about a while back, Tim LaHaye's and Jerry Jenkins' books, the Left Behind series, uh, I have some mild theological problems with those, which you can, you can get that sermon if you want to hear about that. But there is an interesting thing in the Left Behind series at the beginning. I don't think it was in this most recent remake of the movie, but in the books, uh, the way that the heroes really come to Christ after the rapture, which, by the way, is my theological problem. I don't think it's possible. But the way that they did uh, is that they saw a videotape that a pastor had left behind. So that if anybody it said, I think it was labeled right on there. It says, if I happen to disappear, watch this. And so they did. And it was just him sharing the gospel. Here's what happened. And these people trusted Christ and were saved. You know, I, like I say, I have some theological problems with the Left Behind series, but I've always liked that idea, and I've always thought that was something we ought to do. Beth always wanted to do that. And it's still on my to-do list, which means I'm being more like Hezekiah than I ought to be here about the whole thing. I'm just frittering away the time and not doing it. But, but we ought to do that, shouldn't we? We ought to leave something behind so that if someone uh, outlives us, we're still telling. See, that was Peter. Peter's response to the slipping away of time when he knew about his end. It spurred him on, and it focused his energy. He wasn't frittering away his last minutes like Hezekiah was. He was, the closer he got, more concerned about telling and retelling and telling again. I wonder if we're doing the same. What if we knew this was our last year? Another guy. Let's read about another guy. This is King Saul. Only a couple more. And we'll be done. Uh, look at First Samuel chapter 28. Just flip back a couple pages in your Bible. First Samuel chapter 28. Here's another person that knew right up to the day. First Samuel chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. 
either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please, conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Don't you think it's hilarious, by the way, that she was shocked when somebody actually came up? Just goes to show you these folks are all fakes. Verse 13, the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed. The Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Saul had turned away from God, if he ever knew him in the first place. Some go so far as to believe Saul wasn't even saved, but I don't think that's the case. I think the Bible is clear that he was. Saved man, but just terribly, sadly carnal and backslidden. And here we see him at the end of his life. God's favor has been withdrawn from his life, from both his reign and his life. And God has already said that the kingdom is going to go to another. It's over. But now here in this passage, he learns when. He knows when now. It's tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow the kingdom will be torn from you and given to David. Tomorrow the warnings God has been giving you for years will come to pass. Tomorrow you and your sons will die and you will be with me. And by the way, that last little part kind of proves to me that he was a saved man. Samuel wouldn't have said that. If he was lost. What if you, like Saul, knew? Would it make a difference? See, in Saul's case, in Saul's case, the result was terror. He was dreadfully afraid. Terror. He was about to meet the God he had rebelled against all his life. He was about to receive the judgment he had always known was coming. He had ignored God and God's word throughout his entire reign, his entire life. And now tomorrow he would face the result of that and he was afraid. Coming to the end, the last day of your life, terribly afraid, is a terribly sad way for a Christian to die. But he did. One more man. This man also knew this was the Apostle Paul. And I'll just read this passage. Second Timothy chapter 4. Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
The Apostle Paul also knew he was at the end of his life. He knew his fight was finished. He knew his race was run. He knew he had run well and he had kept the faith and he knew that the time of his departure was at hand. It was imminent. The axe was about to fall. But unlike King Saul, this man, who had formerly shared his name, didn't share his fear. Paul wasn't afraid. Paul came to the end of his days uh, not afraid, but looking forward with hope, looking forward to reward, not fearing to meet Christ, but speaking of it with great anticipation and longing, filled with faith and peace. So what does all this mean to us as we come to the first Lord's Day in 2015? Four men. And there, there's others that you could perhaps think of uh, that also know. I asked Josh before the service, can you think of everybody? And he immediately said, Jesus, which uh, that didn't count. But there's plenty of them. There's several of them, actually, that, that are not on the list that I've shared with you today that, that knew. What can we learn from these four men who knew? In Hezekiah's, in Hezekiah's case, we learned that it's possible to make poor use of that knowledge and fritter away the time. In Peter's case, we learned it's also possible to make good use of the time that remains, to allow the shortness of time to focus our energies and to put our attention on the only thing that matters. That's telling. In King Saul's case, we learned that coming to the end of our days away from God brings us to that last day afraid. And in the Apostle Paul's case, we learned that coming to the end, having served him to the end, brings us home peaceful and hopeful. And so what if you, what if you knew that 2015 was your last year. Which of those would describe you? I'm praying 2015 is your last year. I'm praying it's my last year. Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. I'm praying that this is the year. And so let us so live in this coming year that we are focused on what matters rather than frittering it away. And let us so live in 2015 that we'll look forward to meeting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and not fearing the day. What if you knew?